For this portion of WGTD's morning show, we're going to be talking about the marvelous game of football, but not football the way we Americans think of that term, football as that term is understood really around the rest of the world, the beautiful game of soccer, and particularly how the game of soccer is played and followed and revered in Great Britain. And uh, this is celebrated uh, in an incredible and beautiful new book called The Game, uh, a book which actually was uh, initially published a couple of years ago and has uh, just been uh, refurbished and uh, released for American readers uh, by relegation books. It is a book which uh, includes a plethora of spectacular photographs by Stuart Roy Clark, my morning show guest, who uh, has been covering the the game of soccer, which he loves so much, or football for him, uh, over the past 30 years or so. Uh, The book also features a really illuminating conversation between Mr. Clark and John Williams, associate professor in the sociology of sport department at the University of Leicester. They have an extensive conversation about the history of the game and its nature uh, in uh, the early 21st century. Uh, The book is magnificent and belongs on the shelf for the coffee table of of anybody who uh, loves the game of of soccer and wants to understand, uh, in particular, the way it is played and loved uh, in Britain. And I'm very excited to uh, have Stuart Roy Clark with me for the next few minutes to talk about uh, this new book. And we'll also make uh, mention of a previous book of his called Homes of Football. Stuart Roy Clark, we welcome you to the morning show. Hello to your audience and to you, Greg. A lovely build-up there. Thank you very much. (laughs) I'm glad we can have this conversation. I watched a couple of different videos about you and your work uh, as a sports photographer covering uh, British football. And uh, one of the points that was made in one of those uh, short videos was about the very conscious choices you have made in terms of the kind of photographic equipment that you use uh, for capturing various uh, images in and around the the game of football. Uh, Tell our listeners about some of these choices that you have very consciously made and why you think they have made a difference in the kind of images that you have captured over the years. Yeah, thanks for that opportunity. Um, I probably use a camera now that is, by the way, the same one that I've used for the entire 30 years, that is probably a fraction in terms of its value of many of the digital cameras. And um, dare I say, it's probably cheaper than some mobile phones. But it looks fantastic. It's, um, It's a medium format camera. So people say, which wedding are you going to photograph today if they don't know me? Because it doesn't look really like the thing you'd have at a sports arena. Um, you look down into it, everything's back to front, um, and it's on film. So you, you know, sometimes people peer over my shoulder and say, oh, let me see the photo you just took of me. And I say, um, well, if you come to my house in two weeks when the postman delivers the pictures type thing, then you can. So this surprises everybody, um, but not me. And so uh, I won't give too long-winded answers. Uh, I always get a bit excited and carried away <laughs> the opportunity to speak about what I do because I absolutely love it. Um, but, yeah, I made a decision. I, I was trained, you know, I got a degree in film and photography, so I kind of knew 
what I was doing. I knew the options out there, the sort of equipment one could use. And in 1989-90, we had um, quite a bit of unrest, if you like, um, that followed on from two decades of unrest in our national game. That it, you know, we had three disasters that killed people, and you wouldn't expect that at a sporting arena. That was bad enough. Um, people were sort of, hool- you know, there was hooligans, if you like, is the only word for it, really, at our grounds. Not the majority, but enough to dis- disrupt it and uh, disfigure it and give it a bad reputation around the world. I can't claim that we're a nation of saints. Um, and when I say we, a nation, I'll come on to that, you know, why I feel that with some authority, I can speak like that. Um, but through our soccer, our football, which you kindly introduced it as, Greg, I, I do feel that actually we, it's the best of us. It's not the worst of us. It's the best of us. And since that, that date, that 30 years ago, when I picked up my camera to use in this way, and I, I considered other subjects that interested me, and I thought sport wasn't serious enough, but then I thought, actually, in this small country where there's 6,000 soccer clubs um, of, of, of appreciable size all tripping over one another, how could I not see, you know, it was like the elephant in the room, that something I'd loved in my life was, in fact, the, um, the serious subject for a documentary photographer. And uh, finishing off the camera... Is the same one, as I say, I've used all that time. And the digital guys who I thought were laughing at me 10 years ago, I think now put their you know, sh- arm on my shoulder and say, do you know what? I kind of love to be doing what you do. You, you take, I've heard you take 30 pictures in a day sometimes of eight hours, and we take 6,000 at one occasion. And we only get to use a few of them. The editor's only a few. So there you go, Greg, a long answer. But so I love my camera. Um, it's the camera that I've used all along. Why would I change it? You know, it, it's something I'm comfortable with. And it's not just me who loves it. People um, from all backgrounds, professional photographers and amateurs, people at festivals, which I do a bit in the summer, they all come up and want to touch it. You know, the youngsters, as if it's something they haven't seen before. They're used to mobile phones. Um, dare I say, it's a kind of real camera, but not necessarily um, the one with the long lens that documentary photographers are renowned for. Hmm. One of the points of your book is to celebrate the tremendous loyalty that uh, various British fans of football have for their particular teams, whoever they are. And uh, you characterize this as something quite distinctive. I mean, that in many cases we are talking about kind of a long-suffering loyalty uh, and, and a, a ferocious sort of loyalty that probably is sometimes very difficult to uh, explain or, or, or quantify. Tell us more about this and the ways in which you think this is something unique to British football. I love the clarity of these questions, so I'll have to live up to it with my answers, Greg. And I know the answer, really, is that we've got a game. If it's, if it's, that, it's a phenomenon, really. Um, it's all centred around this ball, you know, which is a very natural shape. And I go on in the book without getting too surreal that perhaps it's a very natural shape and, and a reason that we play football for good reason. You know, you, you ch- literally chuck a round into a stable and two horses would start kicking it about. It, it's the same sort of thing. So 
we've got a country that goes back not as old as Egypt and Greece, but, you know, some of these early games of soccer or football were street games where there was countless people per side. There was no rules. It was very violent. But it was played in the 1300s. You know, there's definitely evidence of this in England and Scotland. So by the time we get to the 1800s, there's been several hundred years of sort of brushing it up, separating it out from the rugby game where you can use your hands. And it's decided from about 1860 that soccer, football, is the game for not necessarily posh people, although there was a lot of them organising rules from public schools. Um, and it's not necessarily just the game for the, if you like, the rowdies in the street. It's, it's kind of almost everybody's game. And, you know, to this day, this is, this is what we've got. I, I honestly believe that there was nothing richer in our society than, um, than this spectacle. And, um, you know, I feel very proud to have been associated with it. Um, I took that decision in 89 to concentrate all my efforts, apart from perhaps two months in summer where I would do music festivals, which were gatherings. But this thing about loyalty, um, that's peculiar to soccer. Uh, festivals, people like bands, and they maybe support bands. They, they support Green Day or somebody like that. But it's not quite the same. What you've got in soccer, football, is a season um, that lasts 10 months. So that goes through all four seasons in, in Britain. We have you know spring, summer, winter, um, et cetera, and autumn. And the supporter sees their team play throughout that time. Many people go to away matches, which is not really a characteristic of, of American um, games, I don't think. And, you know, that, those things are tests of loyalty. And then the third big test, you mentioned it, few teams win anything. You know, think about it, 6,000 clubs, and there's only so many leagues and cups. There's only a few teams that actually win a trophy. So it's all about a test of, it's not religion, that's not the right expression, but it's a test of loyalty to support something that perhaps has passed down to you through several generations, grandfathers, grandmothers, you know, right back to the 1800s. And it's quite hard to resist this, you know. And for me, um, looking for that subject, I, I succumbed to its powers and, and, you know, see no sign of stopping growth. Hmm. The book is not only a celebration of, of soccer at its sort of grandest level in your country, but uh, also a celebration of soccer being played at, at uh, all kinds of other levels, including the fairly humble uh, arena of, of village football. Um, tell us why it was important for you to celebrate soccer as it is played on, in, in all of these different kinds of arenas, from the grandest to the most modest? I like that question, too, very much, because I caught a thing that you touched on that is the name of at least one of my books, The Homes of Football. So to translate to America, if you like, The Homes of Soccer. And it was always that plural thing. So I was out to find the voice, the, the look, the style, the games, the clubs of many, not just who is the best. That was always my thing. And, you know, it, it was an easy thing to do in a country with 6,000 football clubs. And this was even before the women got going because they've added another, in the past four, 10 years, they've added another couple of hundred clubs to, to this figure, if you like. Um, it, you know, we, we're not a nation of women's football. Uh, America is. But we're catching up in that regard. But um, 
I I kind of wanted to show the game at all its levels, and I can honestly say next week I'll be going to a game which is have a, an attendance of thirty people, but it's in a it's in a ground right next to where I lived in the beautiful Lake District, and you know I have a chance to photograph every player, perhaps as he's readying to play, every. Every spectator, every passerby, uh, every sheep that runs on the pitch, you know, it's a joy to go to that sort of occasion. I can't deny that I'm absolutely gobsmacked and love being at, um, you know, the World Cup finals. Uh, the USA is staging it in 2026. I'll be there. I was here in 1994. And I want to be next year on road trips around the USA discovering your football soccer heritage, if you like. But back here, it's Everybody I know is from a town that that boasts a soccer club, and many of them have supported them. So I want to include everyone. The experience is always a bit different, but it's always... I've never been bored. You know, I've done 3,500 matches, and I'm not some sort of sad train spotter, as we call them. I, I'm really someone who, who thinks this is a great place to watch people, um, to watch an occasion, to watch, if you like, an unknown score unfold. It's got so many aspects, Greg, that um, it really is my subject forevermore. Mm. I really appreciate the fact that your book features photographs that are not just of the camera pointed at the field, uh, capturing these marvelous athletes in action, but that you also capture these incredible shots uh, of fans in the stands. Uh, and in so many cases, there's just this tremendous sense of drama that just leaps from the page. One of my, I think maybe my favorite photograph in the whole book is some kind of crowd scene. It's in the evening, and in the distance, we see this beautiful kind of lavender sky. But <laughs> then we see these hundreds of soccer fans who are completely oblivious. Their eyes are trained on something going on uh, out on the field, and and it is it is as though they are absolutely locked and mesmerized by whatever is is going on and uh i think that's the kind of thing where uh someone who's not a photographer might not realize the power and beauty of of a shot like that that you've captured so perfectly do you happen to remember the shot i'm talking about i do i do greg sheffield wednesday and and i think that at hillsborough and the thing that adds to that you know, that's enough. All that you said was perfect. But actually, it's the ground that changed football history because it had this biggest disaster at it where, you know, nearly 100 people were killed at a soccer match. Soccer lives on there, and it's slightly controversially, but on that evening in May, whatever it was, four years ago, when they're playing Sheffield Wednesday, you, have, you know, there's this beautiful scene. And the fans are kind of interested a bit in me. If it's boring game, they, they notice me. But mostly they have something bigger to watch. So it's great for me. You know, very very quickly, back about 30 years ago, I had that decision. As, was I going to try and be a sort of Annie Leibovitz photographer where, you know, it's one-to-one, celebrities, whatever. Um, there's always a, a kind of market for those if you can do it well. Um, celebrity shots. Or was it this kind of great celebrity of, of a game, you know, and that's the, that's the route I took. So I'm the anonymous figure. Um, I don't know, two million people in a country of 60 million know me, but most don't. So I kind of am fairly anonymous, um, quite well known in, in this regard of doing this Homes of Football, uh, the game um, opus, as they call it. But 
it's such a great place to just point the camera and know that they've got something more interesting to be looking at than how many buttons I've got on my shirt. <laughs> we should touch on the fact, of course, that uh, that whenever a game is followed as ferociously as it is uh, in Britain, and of course it is in other countries around the world, that sometimes there can be a kind of ugliness to that uh, ferocious, ferocious devotion to one's own team or one's own nation. And we do, in fact, see from time to time uh, moments of nationalism and, and racism that, that are really uh, unfortunate. I wonder uh, if what, what kind of change you have seen in that regard over the, the three decades that you have been following this game so intently. Thank you, yes. The, the starting point, really, for all this, 30 years ago, was, OK, I need to earn a living, and perhaps I can make it here. I need a great subject. It's here. But it was a sense of mission. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not religious, but I, I kind of follow this with a, an unbridled passion. We've got something so special here. But for 20 years, which was really the period where I was growing up, it was quite a troubled game, you know. There were so many matches that were interrupted and uh, we had to put sort of cages up, but we would never have uh, dogs, really, um, or guns or moats, as many countries did. And even then, people weren't respecting that, you know, that kind of liberty. They were still chucking things about, running on the pitch, assaulting people, fighting. Not every match, but quite often, too often. And then we had disasters and then there was money. And then there was an intention to say, let's change this game. It need, we need to scrap this game. Heaven's sakes, we spent 700 years building it. But let's kind of do, do away with those people, that behavior, bring on a new audience and the seating of all the big stadia. You know, you had to have a seat. So that kind of cut some of that out, that idea of kind of tribes of people just doing what they're like, wandering around a football ground, which you still see in Brazil and places. Um, and then we could take down any as we like and actually now for the last 28 years the experience has been that you you can almost touch these soccer players who are worth millions of pounds you know you can and sometimes when they score a goal they throw themselves into the crowd and you think ah, you know they're like why would they do that but they still feel something special for those crowds you know the game at the minute um greg is We've got an unprecedented situation, which you you know what I'm going to say, because we've all got it around the world, is no crowds. Hmm. Don and I finished this book on the very eve of this pandemic. We had no idea it was going to happen. No one did. So we, we put the, together and put to bed this lovely book, this new version that you have uh, before you, the game uh, in America, um, published in America, about our game. Not knowing this, but saying in one chapter, what would the game be like without crowds? And in a nutshell, let's not even go there with the idea. It, you know, crowds make it. John and I are now like, whoa, we were so right about that. Because the game is, is, is trundling on at the moment, as it is in America and the US. But it's half the game, not even that, tenth of the game that it was. And <laughs> it, it's better that it's taking place at all um, to keep it going, or else clubs would go broke there would be no tv deals would all be surrendered etc but it isn't the game that that we're used to we can't wait for the crowds to come back um the bad behavior wasn't really just a soccer thing you know i think it was our nation um and 
looking at Brexit, you know, which lots of people scratch their head over about what's been going on in Britain in the last four years, um, it, it exposed a real dualism. You know, there was 50% almost, to be honest, of what people wanted to leave as wanting to stay. And it reminded me, I didn't like it, I hadn't liked it at all, but it did remind me the dualism of our nation. We are quite an argumentative bunch, but we're also not hate, you know, we don't hate our neighbour. We, we just kind of want to bring them close to push them away a bit, to bring them close to push them away. Soccer, once again, is the perfect arena. To have two clubs, you know, like Sheffield, we mentioned Wednesday and Sheffield United, they're a mile and a half apart, and they've been going over hundreds of years. And then we've got a Dundee, which is in the book. There's two clubs that have been going for 140 years that are 100 metres apart, and they were not joined together. They were not become the same. Um, and it's not to do with religion. It's because they have a slightly different identity. So we are a nation of kind of argumentative people, but I also think there's a great kindness there, and a great humour comes out of a lot of this, you know, because it is so silly half the time. But what a glorious silliness it really is, that game. So <laughs> there's my answer, Greg. Very good. Do you have time for a couple more questions, or do I need to let you go? I, no, I love these questions. Keep, keep them coming, Greg. <laughs> right. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with photographer Stuart Roy Clark, and we are talking about his marvelous book called The Game, which examines the game of football, as it is known in Britain, soccer as we call it here in America. And as a matter of fact, this book, The Game, has just been re-released in a special edition for uh, North American readers. Uh, it is the product of Stuart Roy Clark, uh, as well as uh, John Williams, who has extensively studied the sociology of, of sport. Mr. Clark, there's an, an interesting photograph in the book uh, from, I think, the early 1990s that's essentially a shot of some of the, some of the people in the press room uh, dispatching their stories over the phone, uh, dictating uh, their account of, of the soccer game that's just, just finished. And it's a really wonderful, dramatic shot. But, of course, it is also of another era. And I think uh, it's you or, or, or Professor Williams that say that, that uh, today, of course, everyone is a reporter. <laughs> and uh, it's yeah. really interesting to kind of stop and think about that, the way in which... The, the results of games and even photographs from that the, that particular game are can be shared far and wide in in an instant. It's just not the way it was uh, two or three decades ago. I wonder to what extent you lament uh, this development, or at least to some extent, do you welcome it or welcome at least certain aspects of it? Thank you. Um, I don't think I lament it. Um... I'm a bit wary of it, but it is, as it, it is as it is. I think when I started my photography in the 80s, 1980s, and then this project in 1989-90, I always felt that I was one of a peculiar band, uh, call them whatever you want, photojournalists, um, reporters, whatever, who in a way sent letters home, you know, letters, visual letters, and sometimes with extended captions about whatever it was. And Many of the photographers exposed troubles and, you know, things are wrong with the world, some the joy of it. But I, um, I felt I was one of a few that was special. You know, as you say, in a 50,000 in a crowd at Manchester United, there would only be allowed 
10 photographers or something who had proper equipment that could relay the grandeur, the faces, some of the things you've described, Greg. You know, there weren't any mobile phones. There was none, not one, in 1990 when I started. By the end of the 90s, there was some. And then, of course, now everybody is allowed a mobile phone inside the ground. So you could have 50,000 or 100,000 cameras. And um, only they only seem to draw the line, really, the clubs. If you've got what a bit like my camera with a big lens bulging out, they might stop you at the door and say, you know, actually, that's one of the objects you're not allowed to bring in. They realized it was a tide they couldn't stem. So has that meant that I'm redundant? Um, no. Um, I've still got this experience, but, it's, you know, what I'm doing isn't just about the past. In other words, I do like the challenge now that, this season coming, the season after that, because I'm not going to stop this, um, you know, bring them on. Anyone who, who's going to sort of try and rival the, the um, letter home, as I call it, that I'm doing, is welcome. So most people are reporting things around them, things to do with their club, things to do with other clubs. But I think I've kind of strung it all together. You know, that's the thing. I've kind of got a bigger picture. You know, I'm allowed to go to all the clubs and... Uh, a journey far and wide to do it and has been for 30 years so i think that that keeps me going i've got that under my belt if you like um no i think it's a challenge too you know just going the other way outside of soccer greg i haven't given up on trying to photograph some other things i might not do the annie Leibovitz kind of route of celebrities but <laughs> i still fancy a few other subjects and then in a way i don't have all that 30 years of experience behind me so I like the idea, will my photos, even if I take a few on a mobile phone, will they stand out, you know, against what everyone else is reporting? Because that's what we all are. Mm. That's the answer. Very good. How much do you lament the commercialization of football in in Britain? The fact that it has, in some respects, in recent years, taken off in spectacular fashion, but perhaps in a way that can't always be, in a sense, reined in. And clearly, uh, just from looking at this book, we can tell that uh, you have a real love of the game as it is played in simpler venues. Uh, do you have any misgivings about the commercialization of, of soccer or its kind of grandiosity uh, at, at certain levels? When the pandemic began, Greg, um, lots of the soccer players were easy targets. I have to say that criticised for the millions of pounds that they earn every year, millions of dollars, playing a game that most people want to just play for nothing. And they were turned on, really, in the first few weeks, and by the politicians who pointed the finger, said they should give money back. Um, and in a way... The commercialization of the game was suddenly then being really like abused. But actually, lots of people have enjoyed this, you know, with television, television coverage and better signings for their football clubs. I mean, I have to say that the Premier League in Britain, England, is really a world league. You know, the, the divisions below it are more like the English leagues. But I love them all. I really do. As long as I can still go to all those smaller games that have their own values, I wouldn't say I'm not worried, but I kind of think, OK. And then on that point of the players earning astronomical amounts and possibly still not quite as as much as some of your 
Um, your football players and ice hockey players, and stuff, who, who, you know, are probably the highest earners, um, they showed an incredible resilience, most of them, um, to, to kind of almost come back with an argument. You know, footballers, soccer players didn't really, weren't really thought of as having this voice. And some of them have done some amazing social things. It's not token. The clubs haven't made them do it. They've, you know, I can't go into them all, but they've done so many great things. And I think that criticism has stopped. I think there's criticism of the TV companies who've bought so many games. You know, it's said that you can see almost every match going on TV if you want to somewhere. And, and it's affected all the kickoff times. This idea that the whole nation was kicking off at 3 p.m. on a Saturday was a thrill. You know, that was a really lovely thing. It was it's like what we said, the shipping forecast. Reading out of the football results at 5 p.m. on a Saturday night is, is or was one of the joys to behold. It was like checking in with the whole nation and bringing them to you through the um, little mirror of, of, of soccer. Um, some of that has been battered a bit. But, you know, I think there's been some great things in the last 30 years. So I'm not going to be one of the complainers. You know, I've, I've, liked, I've liked all of it, really. Um, but I keep saying as long as we don't lose lots of that small, the detail, the kind of love, um, I can live with some of the big stuff. <laughs> and uh, I, I like the way it was phrased in a review of your book where uh, somebody wrote, The Game is a balm for those disillusioned by the greed and arrogance of modern football's top strata, restoring one's faith in the sport's fundamental and unchanging joys. By the way, I want to mention that uh, your book has a wonderful section devoted to halftime in the typical soccer game. And uh, I think you're the one who poses, what is it about halftime at a football match? You you see a special kind of magic in that moment, I think. I do. Um, we don't really have halftime in pop concerts. So you have that moment before an encore. Everyone knows they're going to do an encore unless they've been really bad. But in the soccer, it's, it's, it's almost mystical what happens. How can a team play so badly or so well in one half of a game, send out the same players in the second half to play so differently? That quite often happens. Is it this you know, drinking of oranges. There's certainly not drug taking. You know, let, let's just get over that one. It, it's just something happens there. It's a kind of reappraisal. The game is halfway through, and you have a chance to rethink it, uh, to push your shoulders out, to perhaps the opposite, to fade away. You know, to to lose your uh, appetite for the second half. The manager has a chance to say something amazing. You know, and there's always these uh, speeches being rolled out. He said this you know, one line and it transformed the game. And the fans do weird things at halftime. You know, they're all sort of in their spots, even if snow's coming down and or the sun's out. And then they go to get, you know, a bovril or a drink or something or go go to I don't know, just go for a little walk for a few minutes and come back. Um it's it's a wonderful thing. I, I don't know, we're in our lives, you know, marriages and things, could we have a half time? Um, something wonderful about half time. <laughs> I think it is your co-author who writes, for players and coach, it's a chance to recalibrate. Where is it going wrong? What do we need to do to hold on? And yes, I think we all yeah. like to wish we like to <laughs> offer up those moments where we could, where we could do the same. Well, yeah. I hope it's clear how much I have enjoyed exploring your book, and I know many others will enjoy it as well. And I must confess, I say this even as someone who's not 
all that much a fan of the game, certainly someone who does not particularly know the game well. But uh, this uh, celebration really captured my attention, and I think it will do so even more for someone who loves this game as much as you do. Uh, The book, again, is titled simply The Game, published by Relegation Books, a gorgeous book uh, with a plethora of splendid photographs by my morning show guest, Stuart Roy Clark. Stuart Roy Clark, I've uh, very much enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for all of your good work over the years and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about your wonderful new book. Best wishes to you. Thanks, guys. I hope to see you in person. Um, you know, you're a wonderful um, presenter there. I'd love to see you next year, being realistic. It probably won't be this year. When I come over and I try and get to the bottom of your own game. It's it, it, it <laughs> valued, if you like. So see, see you then, Greg. Sounds good. Thank you so much.